guys, Jack here with a couple quick announcements. Uh, first of all, I wanted to say that we're going to do a second edition of the Just Hands Poker stream uh, tomorrow, Wednesday at 9 p.m. Uh, I'll be playing a few six-handed cash tables uh, on Bovada, or probably actually uh, Ignition Poker, which is the new edition of Bovada. Anyways, tune into that. Uh, that's on Twitch. You can just search Just Hands Poker. It should be pretty easy to find. The only other thing in way of announcements is to keep sending us hands. Uh, and on this episode, you'll see uh, we actually got sent an audio file of a hand, and we really liked that format. Uh, if you also like it, one, you can let us know uh, at our website, JustHandsPoker.com, or you can email me, Jack, at JustHandsPoker.com. Uh, but if you like this format and you want your hand to be featured on the show like this, then you can send us an audio file to that email address. Or as always, you can send us a hand using our hand history form on our website. All right, guys, enjoy the, enjoy the episode, and we'll see you next week. Hello, Jackson. Hello, Zach. You look uh, looking good in this music studio here. Looks uh, kind of fancy. Too bad you had to resort to using... Uh, your headphone microphones as you were unable to you know, get the plethora of extremely fancy microphones at your disposal to work. Uh, yeah, I just but alas, I couldn't couldn't get it hooked up to my computer in time. What are you going to do? I don't know. Well, this shows about content, not, you know, if you want crisp the crispest of audio qualities, you can uh, uh you know, look to Gimlet Media or something. So, so, says the man who's talking into a microphone. Yeah, uh, USB mic. You know, we've established that there are superior versions, but this will do. Okay, so for our listeners today, we're gonna do something we've never done before. So in the past, when we've discussed listener hands, uh, it's usually from like an email or from the contact form from our website. But today, um, we had someone who sent in an audio file, kind of recounting a hand they played at the Parks Casino. So without further ado, here's the hand. Hey Zach. Hey Jack. This is Brian. I just discovered your guys' podcast last week, and I listened to all of them. (laughs) Um, I listened to a few poker podcasts, and I like yours better than any of them. Well, Brian, let's stop you right there and just say thank you. We're really glad you're enjoying the show. Uh, You know, at at an extremely fast rate, it seems to... We'll have to create some more bonus content uh, to satiate your future Just Hands needs. But for now, uh, thank you for writing in, and let's get onto the hand. I'm biased, though, because I am a fiend for hand histories, especially uh, live cash game hand histories, which are very hard to find. (laughs) Well, you know, Brian, we could actually kind of relate to that sentiment. <laughs> uh, no, but really, I mean, that that's why we started our podcast, you know. Like, there's a bunch of really great poker podcasts out there that I fiendishly listen to as well. Um, but I always look forward to the strategy section. And I always thought, well, I wish they had more time on the strategy section. Or I wish, you know, uh, there was a podcast that just did more of that. Uh, so... That that's really why we started started ours. So we really we really appreciate your comments. Yeah, and and it is tough to find live hand histories. I mean, we've 
we've leaned on guests and uh, our listeners just because you can find some spots live that are probably the most interesting because you have the most information. Uh, you have live reads. Uh, you tend to get a more detailed perspective on player strategies from shorter amounts of time. But then again, you're playing 30 hands at most an hour, so it's it can be tricky to find interesting spots. Uh, so yeah, thank you for writing in. Let's do it. I play a lot of cash games. I am a, a recreational player. I've been tracking my um, my sessions for about two years. Um, I am in the red still, but if you look at my graph, basically it, it, it kind of is, goes on a slow trajectory downward as I'm learning the game. Uh, but I'm on the way up, and I uh, hope to be in the black in a couple of months. Um, anyway, this hand is um, from Parks, uh, my regular uh, poker room here in the Philadelphia area. I live in the suburbs. It's about a 30-minute drive for me. And uh, it's a 1-2 game. It's my most common game. I also play 1-3 occasionally, and uh, a little bit of Omaha if there's a 1-2 game going on, or I'll also play 2-5, um, pick a stab here and there. Um, but that's really too high for my bankroll. But it's fun once in a while. Anyway, um, this is a 1-2 game. The table is mostly, it's a Friday night. Um, the table is mostly amateurs. Um, there's three regulars, myself, the villain, and a guy to my immediate right, who's a nice guy I enjoy talking to. Anyway, this hand comes about two hours into the session, and it's with the one person at the table I really um, eh, rather not tangle with. It's, it's this villain who's across the table. I'm in the seventh seat, he's in the three seat, and... He's basically, I would describe him as a pro, except for he's at a 1-2 table, first of all. And then secondly, um, he never looked up from his phone, except to when the action was on him, to look at his cards. And uh, didn't seem to be playing much but premium hands, um, just by the frequency of the hands that he was playing. So my first impression of this villain, one thing I want to emphasize is like, you really, in America, it's really, really hard to be a one-two pro. You just can't win enough money to really make a very good living. I'm sure some people do it, and you know, power to them. I'm sure they're putting in a ton of volume and probably living a very conservative lifestyle, uh, or not, or not. But it's very difficult to be a one-two pro. So generally, anyone you see it. Uh, the poker table at one two is going to be a recreational player of some sort, even if they're playing for profit. Uh, the other thing is, if this guy is playing only premium hands, if that's what his frequency suggests, and he's just watching his phone, then I'm guessing he's probably someone who just figured out that like you can play good hands and people will give you action and you'll make some money. Uh, but that it still doesn't sound like he should be someone that you necessarily fear at the table. Yeah, I think for me personally, when I see a player like this, this is like, you know, I'd obviously rather have someone who's making a ton of giant mistakes all the time. But in short of that, this player is really nice to have at the table because they're often very predictable on every street, uh, you know, pre-flop and post-flop. This type of player is going to have 
a relatively narrow range compared to your opponents, and it will be easier to range this person. Uh, and this person will likely um, have very exploitative bet sizes because they've kind of likely figured out that at 1-2, you can bet bigger with your value hands and smaller with your bluffs. So if you notice that this player is doing this, which based on your description I think is likely, you can really exploit them um, through you know bluff catching and bluff raising their weak hands and exploitably folding some of your better hands when they're taking a strong line. So um, while this player might be intimidating in that they don't maybe seem to get too um, invested in the game and therefore they might have an aura of confidence, um, I wouldn't be intimidated by this player next time you play play them, Brian, because uh, you know you're gonna you're gonna know what they're doing, and you'll be able to exploit that you know in an easier way than most players you encounter, even if it's a little bit less profitable than some of the worst players. Yeah, the I mean the other thing about playing a player like this, if his range is very top heavy, and he's not mixing in you know, suited connectors, uh, suited aces, you know, opening a lot of pairs. And he's going to have really poor board coverage. And so there's just going to be a lot of flops uh, where you'll be able to punish his C-bets. I mean, obviously, like Zach said, I think paying attention to his sizing is really smart. But also, if someone's playing a really top-heavy range, like almost all Broadway hands and premium pairs... Uh, then you're going to be able to, you know, have the have a range advantage on a lot of boards by playing uh, a range that has more board coverage. Yeah, agreed. Um, and when he was not in the hand, he never watched the action, not once. Um, always looked at his phone. He was reading something, had his earphones in also, and only would look up when the action was on him. And then even when he was in the hand, he would pay attention. But he would always. He also glanced down. Uh, you know, if, if a player was ever thinking, he would just go back to reading. So he just was playing his cards. I mean, it's the only way I can put it. Um, I think he's tight passive. Is probably how I would describe him. If he's in a hand, he will he'll push. He'll push if he has it. You know, kind of thing. But he's he's basically passive because I don't think he's going to be trying to make any moves on anybody. Um, although he could, because he definitely has the aptitude for it. So. Um, I think he, you know, he would bet some draws and semi bluffs and things like that. But I don't think he's going to be in the pot with, you know, uh, small equity. I think he's he's basically going to go play solid. Um, so you know, tight passive, maybe could be aggressive at times, but but tight. Um, anyway, he's really the only player history you need to know. I guess mine would be helpful. Um, I I had a really good session. I I was really happy with the way I played, um, even up to that point and and really throughout the session. But uh. I, my image was probably somewhere between um, tight aggressive and loose aggressive. The first hour I played very tight. For the first two orbits, I didn't play a hand, um, mainly because I was just trying to get a feel for the table, and also because I was not getting any cards. So, you know, sat down and, and was pretty tight and, and solid, and really didn't get much for the first hour. Um, and so that was my image for the first hour, and then the second hour I. I feel like I, I opened. I do. I did open up quite a bit, um, playing some pots in position. Um, I got caught bluffing maybe once, and you know, I think some players reluctantly folded to me on a few other hands. Um, so, 
you know, I had a, a solid image, but I think maybe a couple players might be suspicious, suspicious and want to look me up from time to time. Anyway, um, I think this other player knew that I was a reg, um, or at least could tell. Um, he probably played with me before. He probably remembers playing with me as well. So yeah, I just wanted to comment, Brian, on you know your description. I, I'm glad you went in depth with it and kind of gave some history and your background with these players. And I think you did a pretty solid job with this. What I would say next time. Uh, if you submit another hand to the podcast or just kind of when you're thinking about hands in the future, trying to think about like actual opponent tendencies on a kind of more specific level, I think would be really helpful when doing these type of hand histories, kind of like they see bet too much. They fold too much to see bets. They're too loose pre-flop it because the information you gave is helpful, but it's the more kind of specific reads and being able to really observe when you're at the table, what they're doing on each street and what their tendencies are that allows you to take, you know, the most exploitative, profitable lines. Yeah, I think in some of the sort of descriptive terms you gave, uh, there's sort of strategic implications. Uh, but I think it's just, you know, uh, well, here's an example. So when you say this player is tight passive, we've already sort of talked about the pre-flap range, but uh, I guess what I'm hearing here is that this player is under bluffing. So probably... This is not a player who is going to c-bet 100% of the time uh, if you're describing them as type passive. But if that's you know not true and th- this player is sort of type passive in a different way but will c-bet you know, almost every time and heads up pots, uh, then that's a more nuanced and useful description. Anyway, um, so to the hand. Um, I am under the gun plus one. I have $220. The villain has me covered. So the under-the-gun player limps, and I raise to 12 with the king of clubs, queen of diamonds. Um, This is marginal for me. If it was king jack or queen jack, I think I would fold. Yes, I would fold. Um, Ace nine, I would probably fold, unless it was suited. The king jack, queen jack hands, if they were suited, I would I would play and raise raise as well. Um, but uh, you know, anything less um, folding. So interested to know what you think of that. Uh, yeah, I think at a, a nine-handed table, that seems pretty reasonable. I think I'm pretty unlikely to open, you know, hands like uh, definitely not queen ten. Uh, almost certain, probably not queen jack offsuit. You know, from this early position, uh, I think a hand like king queen offsuit is totally fine to bring in, especially because the limp, the under the gun limp suggests a hand that you uh, definitely are not dominated by. I mean, some people would limp an ace king ace queen under the gun, but I I think it's likely that that limpers range you're way ahead of and. Uh, it's it's a strong enough hand to open with seven people left to act. Yeah, I think if you're if you've identified this player as primarily playing premium hands, I think this player when they limp under their gun, their range is going to be primarily small and medium pocket pairs. I think you're going to see some variety where you know some people will raise hands kind of as bad as sevens, and some people will limp hands as good as tens. Uh but yeah, from a player like this that 
you say kind of seems straightforward, playing premium hands, value bets when he has it. This, you know, I, I would say this player is going to have primarily pocket pairs uh, when they do this, maybe some suited aces, but because you said they were playing, you know, relatively tight, I would, I, I wouldn't necessarily know if they would limp every suited ace. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize that this was the main villain. I, f- I forgot that he was to our direct right. So yeah, I definitely think it's unlikely that he'd be raising a hand like ace king or ace queen. Uh, or sorry, that he would not raise a hand like Ace-King or Ace-Queen, which is something that you have to worry about with some 1-2 players. Um, But yeah, definitely I think you're you're well ahead of his range. I mean, obviously against pairs, you're a flip, but you'll know generally uh, be able to play pretty well against that range, especially in position. Anyway, the middle position player who's sitting before the... In, in seat one or two, in seat two, I think. Yeah, seat two. Um, called the 12. The villain in seat three called the 12. Button called the 12. And the big blind called the 12. So the pot is uh, $58, I think, after the rake. And the queen clone, uh, the flop comes queen of hearts, seven of spades, six of spades. And. I lead out for $30. Yeah, I think this is a pretty reasonable continuation bet. We're not going to have a ton of stronger hands here. Um, You know, we'll have ace-queen. We'll have queens. uh, We'll we'll probably have sevens and sixes, although uh, depending on how the the table is playing, you might opt to limp those hands. But I think that there's plenty of worse hands, worse queens, uh, and plenty of draws that we'll call you. Uh. Yeah, and I think when everyone else flat calls, uh, you could be pretty confident you're ahead of everyone's range. Um, really, the only hands you're worried about here are pocket sixes, pocket sevens, and six seven uh, suited. Uh, and because there's a six and a seven on the flop, these hands are further discounted from everyone's range. Uh, so I think this is the time to get value from the abundant amount of spade draws that are there potentially worse queens and uh, sticky sevens and straight draws. Seat two, middle position, folds. The villain in seat three calls, and it folds around. So the pot is $118. Sorry, I guess we kind of assumed that the under-the-gun limper was this main villain in the hand where it looks like it was not. It was the middle position player. Uh, so I think, you know, the only correction to that would be that their under-the-gun limping range is probably a lot wider than what we gave, but a similar range of, you know, I think maybe not as primarily pocket pairs when they flat call, but definitely a lot of pocket pairs here. And I think um, when this player flat calls, uh, you can be sure you have the best hand the vast majority of the time. A player, as described, isn't uh, one to, like, slow play a set on a draw-heavy board or slow play two pair. Uh, so I think you can be very confident you have the best hand and, you know, just hope for uh, a brick on the turn. Um, before we go to the turn, I'll, I'll just tell you my plan here. Um, I, I'm just not trying to lose my stack, um, to this guy. Uh, if I lose my stack, uh, it's not going to be to him or if it is, it's just going to be a tough spot. And I, I, I didn't want to do it here out of position, you know, with marginal holding. And so my plan in this hand is to play straightforward. Um, 
that's really it. Uh, I'm not going to try to deceive this guy. Just want to realize any equity that I have. And frankly, when he called um, the flop, uh, or sorry, when he called pre-flop, um, I figured I was behind or, you know, our equity was even. So I, I'm i not just trying to push anything. I just feel like I'm just going to play straightforward. I'm going to stop you right there, Brian. Uh, you've got... I don't. I don't remember if we've talked about effective stacks in this spot, but we know you have uh, 110 big blinds. You've got top pair on a draw-heavy board, uh, and you're playing against someone whose range is very capped uh, in terms of premium hands. Very unlikely that this player would have ace queen. Queens very very unlikely, and it's I would say very unlikely that he would uh, flat a hand like seven six. I think potentially this player might flat sets, but it seems you know that at least some of the time this player is going to be raising with his sets on the flop. So I think you you've got to be prepared to get your stack in here. Uh, it's not like you've got you know six hundred dollars behind and you know you're reluctant to get that in with top pair. I'd understand in that spot you want to protect your stack, but here I don't think that should be a concern. It's just be thinking about value. Yeah, even against a player that you said plays primarily premium hands, when you have 100 big blinds and you have top pair second kicker on a draw-heavy board where there's you know flush draws and multiple straight draws possible, um, I think this is like a very standard spot uh, to get it in. Again, if a really bad card comes on the turn, like you know the the ten of spades, right? I think yeah, then we that's could the card. yeah, I think then we could consider <laughs> you know strongly consider folding. But um, I think poker is a game where you just want to get your money in good more often than you get it in bad. So uh, getting it in good is very rarely 100% equity or 95% equity. And to really maximize your EV, you have to be comfortable with getting it in when you're a 60-70% favorite uh, against the person's range, like you are in this spot. And sometimes they flip over a weird slow-played hand, Sometimes they flip over a draw and hit, but um, you know you you have to be confident in your reads, and you know when you think that you have a range advantage uh, and an equity advantage, you gotta push all the money in, knowing that in the long run uh, you'll win. And I think it's a mistake that a lot of players, probably the majority of players at you know the low stakes at one two and two five make, and that they're very concerned with protecting their stack. And that kind of opens up another conversation about bankroll management. But, you know, in short, I would say you should not be playing stakes that you're not comfortable losing multiple buy-ins in in a single session. Uh, and if it's the case where you don't have the bankroll to do that, I would recommend doing other things to study and play poker uh, in the meantime. Because being able to play good poker and being able to enjoy poker when you're playing on a limited bankroll is much more difficult. I, I think I think your plan to play straightforward is it's probably a good plan, but not for the reason that maybe you think it's a good plan. Uh, I think we have a hand when you say I don't know exactly what you mean when you say play straightforward, but what I would think is that you're probably just gonna bet two streets for value. Uh, you're not going to go for 
a big chick raise, uh, and you're not going to get try and get really tricky and or tricky and check twice to like try and induce a big you know bluffer. I don't know. This is probably just a good spot where you're going to bet twice for value, and that's pretty straightforward to me. But the thing about it is that uh, you're likely going to have bluffs here in this spot that are going to do the exact same thing. So, you know, playing straightforwardly, taking a, a line that is maybe quote unquote less creative, doesn't mean that you're playing in a way that he'll be able to always, you know, know what you have. Um, and then the other thing is that. I think that in your description, it would be helpful to you have some more specific ranging in this spot. Uh, you know, is this is this a player who you think will flat ace queen? Uh, you know, in late position, is this a player who would flat queens? Is this a player who would fold seven six? I mean, I think seven six is pretty relevant at this point either way. Uh, but I just think a more specific read would be, you know, helpful to you and us in discussing this. But just based on what you've said, I, I would say uh, you should just be probably, you know, betting two streets for value on a lot of runouts, and that that's you should be happy with that. So, to the turn, um, which is the five of clubs, and um, I check, I check, I check at this point because. For the, kind of the reasons I mentioned, I'm not trying to play a big pot. It completes straight draws. I guess I don't want to get raised. So I'm going to check call here, probably, depending on how much he bets. Also, it's possible that that card hits me. Um, and so if I check, he may be inclined to check behind to not get raised off whatever he's holding. So... Um, just just check for those reasons. And I, I could, you know, he could be holding ace-queen, you know, so that wouldn't be a good situation, because I think he would call. Um, I just don't see a lot of um, big upside in betting, and I see, I see more potential downside, so I checked uh, the turn. So, yeah, this, this card completes a straight draw. You know, completes... His combos of eight nine suited, and maybe because he's in late position, you could give him a few combos of eight nine offsuit. But based on the description, I would I would be inclined to think that he doesn't really have any any combinations of eight nine offsuit. So then you're you're really saying, but by checking here, you're being afraid of uh, four combinations, um, and likely three because even a player as described. I think is going to be likely to raise combo draws, and that's something that I notice. Relatively straightforward players that don't bluff when they have combo draws often will, you know, semi-bluff those hands on the flop. So I think here you should be betting for value again, uh, because you know, as we discussed, your range is your your exact hand is still ahead of his range. So, and your you know your range is also ahead of his range here too. So for both of those reasons. You should bet to get value from his worst pairs and draws. And I think something we forgot about on the flop, uh, or I forgot about, is not just that he could have a worse queen, a sticky seven, the occasional ace queen. Um, I think he's also playing, you know, eights, nines, and then and tens, and maybe some jacks like this. So, yeah, I mean, I I think those hands are 
maybe somewhat less likely to call uh, a hand like eights or nines with uh, two players left behind to act on the flop. Uh, but here's here's one thing I would say. I think you know this this card definitely helps a portion of his range. I do think he will have you know eight nine suited here. Uh, but I think there's a really key point that you made earlier in the hand that would make this a clear value bet to me, and that's that this player is fairly passive. I think this player could put you in a tough spot, you know, by raising. But I don't think he's going to raise very often. I think if you do get raised uh, betting this turn, then you'll have to put some serious thought into you know how many of this guy's flush draws is he going to be turning into a bluff here that he called behind with uh, on the on the flop. But yeah, I just think it's unlikely that he's going to be bluffing that much if you're you know saying he's a passive player. So I think your best bet is just to you know make a turn continuation bet and uh, try and get value from you know his queen-jack, queen-ten hands and all of the flush draws that pricked out. Yeah, and I think if you make a bet uh, that's at least half the pot, I think he'll be a lot less inclined to turn any flush draws into bluffs there. And again, I think most players at the 1-2 level aren't going to be semi-bluffing a draw where they call the flop and then raise the turn when it completes another draw on a brick. Uh, so while it's pretty exploitable, I think betting, you know, maybe between like 60 and 80 here um, and folding to a raise is, is what I would recommend. Yeah. And if you thought this player was going to overbluff, then I think a check call uh, line makes a lot more sense. Or uh, bet call. Or check bet small, yeah. Yeah. But I don't think that's going to happen very much. So... I would just go ahead and bet, but as played, uh, so it checked, checked to the villain. And I was a little bit surprised that he checked behind, you know, because that card is, is pretty good um, for part of his range, and if he's holding a queen, then I think he would probably bet there too. But I was happy with the check, because I knew I had some equity, or figured I did, and uh, it was fine. So the river card is the eight of diamonds and I really wasn't sure what to do here because he's played uh, you know somewhat passively in the hand I think you know I he could be holding a you know jacks or tens or a smaller queen and of course he could have me beat you know he could have flopped the set he could have um, that's not in no particular order he could have a, a set he could have two pair he could have a straight um, he, he really could have anything um, at this point. I think because he checked the turn, I bet the river. I think I'd just rather um, check fold here, or sorry, uh, bet fold here, or or be the aggressor rather than um, have to call a similar bet from him on the river. So I figure... Just about any way it, it goes, I'm going to have to put another bet into this pot. Either I'm going to call his river bet, um, whether he's bluffing or or has it, or has a smaller queen. I'm, I'm just calling the river if, I'm, if I check to him. Um, 
you know, to a, to a, a normal-sized bet, or or I can choose to be the aggressor and maybe have a, some fold equity, um, or possibly be betting with the best hand. But I know if I get raised, I'm folding. Um, so, so that was the plan for the river bet. Okay. So there's there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, the first thing is I just want to talk about some of the range assumptions that you made here, Brian. Uh, I think it's very likely, or sorry, very unlikely that you're up against two pair here. Uh, I think queen eight is like the most likely two pair combo if this guy was flatting behind with like a queen eight suited. Uh, but I, I think two pairs very unlikely. I think sets are very unlikely because I think that almost all sets are going to be betting the turn if not raising the flop. Uh, so I'd be very, very surprised if this guy had a set here. Potentially, you could be against a straight, but that all, that honestly seems pretty unlikely too because, I mean, sure, there's this player is going to have some spade draws that had a nine, but I think a lot of his eight nine is going to be betting uh, out on the flop, and I don't think he has very many other nines in his range other than, uh, you know, suited nines that were spades. So I think your best bet is just a check call here. You could maybe determine having played with this guy that he would never ever bluff, in which case I think check folding is your best option. Uh, but I don't think you're going to be getting very much value from a bet here. I think with a four straight on the board, it's not super likely that queen 10 is going to call you here. In fact, I think it's more likely that queen 10 would decide to bluff here than call your bet. Uh, maybe not this player, but I, I, do, I do think if you check and this player is holding uh, you know, a missed flush draw, that he's going to be tempted to bluff. Uh, so I think your best bet is to check call. Yeah, I also think that you could kind of check evaluate, and um, I would guess against a player as described, um, a check shove is going to be you know, disproportionately weighted towards value hands. Uh, so I think I, I could pretty comfortably fold to the check shove, um, especially given the, the size of the pot, because that would be an overbet, or, you know, fold to, like, a very large bet, and then definitely call all smaller bets. Because, like, you know, Jack was saying, well, this is a runout that makes your hand not good enough to value bet the river. It doesn't really smash his range. And the hands, yeah, that you, the hands that you were worried about, the few combos you were worried about on the on the flop, like weird slow played sets or two pairs, and the straight combos that that got there on the turn. This card actually doesn't change that, um, and we kind of established that it was very likely for those hands that you were worried about for him to have either raise the flop or bet the turn. So, yeah, I I think check calling. Uh, most most bets is probably best here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I'm, tr- I'm sort of trying to decide if, like, I'm calling a, a shove from this player. I mean... I don't, think, I don't think we really have the information to know, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, he has plenty of combos, uh, 
you know, spade combos to shove here that don't have a nine. And probably, he probably has four, maybe four nines in this spot. Uh, maybe five. So yeah, I guess if he has if he has five nines in this spot, then I'm probably folding to a shove, just because he would have to be you know, turning a good amount. I don't know that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's really tough uh, with the information we have. I would lean towards the side of folding because I think it's a good assumption to make at the low stakes that especially when people are using larger bet sizings, they're not balancing their range appropriately enough with bluffs, so you can make some exploitable folds. Um, but that being said, I could also see a player as described bluffing here, but just with the information we have, probably not enough of the time to make it profitable to check call a large bet. Yeah, I mean, you would have to be, you know, sort of the pot size is like 130 here, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so sorry. Yeah, 120. Yeah, so 120. Yeah. And so a shove here, assuming that he has you covered, and we have, I don't know if we've talked about his stack. Yeah, yeah, no, a shove he, here he has him covered. Would be an overbet. So yeah, I think I would definitely fold to a shove. I just don't think, I mean, this, he would have to be turning like four, he would have to have like four bluff combos. Uh, which I think is, I mean, it's unlikely that I think he has exactly four. I think most people are either under bluffing or over bluffing in this spot. Uh, they probably should be exploitatively. Uh, but yeah, I think given this player's passive, he's probably under bluffing. Uh, and so I'd probably fall to an overbet shove. But I think most most bets here I'm calling. And yeah, I think that since since an, it would have to be an overbet shove, assuming this guy has us covered. I'm just going to assume that because we don't have any better information. No, no, he said he said we're covered. He said he hasn't covered. Oh, we did? Yeah. Okay, sorry, I missed that. Okay, so he has us covered. So, yeah, I think it's unlikely that he's going to shove. And if he's not going to shove, I think it's probably more likely that he'll be making like a half to three-quarters pot size bet, which gives us much, much better odds to call. Yeah, I also think that the type of player who would shove a missed draw on the river for like a pot size bet or a, um, an over bet is also the type of player that is a lot more likely to semi-bluff on the flop or the turn. So I think... Uh, yeah, no, that's a great point. Yeah. So yeah, when when his, you know, suited... Uh, when his spade hands with the nine, you know, have that turn, they're going to be leading... Uh, or they're going to be betting a lot when checked to, which is a really good point. Okay. And this player probably has some, some other queen nine hands that... Uh, Army betting, so I still think he probably has about five, uh, nine hands, five or six. I, I I could I could see a few more combos of that. He's like, let's give him every combo of eight nine suited. But he's probably betting those on the turn, right? Oh yeah, because that's the straight. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I feel like a player like this is always betting those straight combos. So it's really just maybe give him like one combo or half a combo for the weird times they slow play, but. Players really rarely ever slow play straights on flush draw boards. You know, no one likes to get sucked out on. Yeah, especially when you know this player's already voluntarily put money in the pot. So yeah, so you're thinking like eight nine nine ten ten jack ace ten of spades. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, King nine of spades probably, but I think that would have probably bet out. So I'm thinking a lot of the nines he has here are queen nine. Uh, 
Well, and then we could even fur- we, could e- we could even further discount that because we said this player is playing primarily premium hands. So, you know, a player like this who's always looking at their phone, uh, even in late position, I think is more likely to fold that hand than the call. I think people overestimate like how tight people are in these games. That is true. That's also true. Yeah. But so whatever. So but, so round five combos. Okay. Anyways, yeah. So probably check call most sizings. Probably check fold to an overbet shove. Uh, Turns out that the villain calls the sixty-five, and uh, after I turn over my hand, he turns over um, the nine of diamonds and the eight. Or sorry, the nine of hearts and the eight of hearts um, for the uh, nut straight on the turn. So, yeah, you know. I guess I really wasn't that surprised at the other. I don't know. I just I just didn't know what to think of this hand, and that's really the reason I'm sending it in. I I, I want to make sure I played it okay. Um, I, I I'm sure I, I could have played it better, but I'm not really sure where. Um, I guess I have a couple of ideas, but just want your input on it because it's it's kind of a weird hand, and I just felt you know unsure of myself the whole time, and unsure of it after. I never really could figure it out. So I wanted to to uh, kind of hear what you guys um, thought. Thanks a lot. And let me know what you think of um, the audio. Yeah, so uh, for the reasons we described before, Brian, we, we definitely don't like the river bet. And, you know, I think it, it is surprising that this player showed up with 8-9 offsuit uh, for a variety yeah, so of reasons. Sorry, it's 8-9 suited. 8-9 suited. Oh. I think yeah. it is surprising that this player showed up with 8-9 suited uh, because I think the vast majority of players, and especially more so the a type of player as you described, is going to be betting for value on the turn when they have the nuts. Uh, because even with like a kind of minimal amount of poker intelligence, when you raise a limper in early position and bet a flop like queen 7-6, it's pretty rare that you're going to have uh, a bluff. I think you're probably playing your nut flush draws this way. Uh, and then maybe a small amount of your 8-9 suiteds. But I think you're going to be much more weighted towards value when you're c-betting over half the pot in a multi-way pot. So, yeah, I would expect this player to to bet the turn. Uh, and it would have been interesting to me to see what ha- what bet sizing this player used if you were to check to him on the river. Uh, and I'm very surprised this player flat-called the river. I think this also kind of shows that... Uh, you know, as Jack was saying, like, I think it's really easy to think of someone as a tight player. And I think a lot of times, and me and Jack are definitely guilty of this, you know, making too many assumptions based off limited information. Uh, and hands like these are really good to note because I think it's hands like this where on kind of a relatively small amount of information, you could actually make some big assumptions about this person's play. Yeah, you can make some really big assumptions based on the way this guy played the hand. Uh, I think... I actually think the the flop call uh, is probably the right play. Uh, I don't think I would raise there because I don't think he has a very much fold equity at all against your range that's uh, c-betting into five people. Not that he's necessarily thinking of it like that. But yeah, for one, this, in my opinion, this guy missed a ton of value. Uh, I think unless he had some very specific read that... When you check the turn, you almost never have anything, which is obviously a, a poor read. Then it doesn't make sense to 
you know, check the check the turn. Yeah, I think I guess unless he thinks you have nothing and is just looking to induce a river bluff. But yeah, I think he should definitely be leading out the turn for value. Uh and it would have worked. And then when a really exploitative thing that you can gain from this is that this player is not going to be betting extremely thin or raising thin for value. Uh, if this player is not going to raise uh, a 9 in this spot, then there's going to be a ton of situations where you can be confident that when you get raised on the river, or maybe even value bet 2 on the river, that he's going to have a very strong hand. Uh, maybe He might be polarized, but you know, value betting you extremely thinly. Uh, I, I think it's a really strange spot. I mean, I guess he might think, like, what's he ever beating? Uh, he, I can imagine why he might not raise the river. He might think, like, nothing that I'm beating is ever calling. But I don't know if that's true. I think if you ever got to this spot with, like, a set of queens somehow, you're calling. Uh, and I don't think you have very much 10-9 in your range at all. Yeah, when when someone doesn't raise the combo with when someone doesn't raise the second nuts on this type of river, you can also you know make note that when they make a river raise or a turn raise, uh, and you have a pretty good hand, you could feel very comfortable folding it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for the audio, Brian. Uh, we look forward to doing uh, more hands like this in the future. <laughs>